Welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. I'm your host, Anna Lindbergh-Cedar, a burnout prevention therapist. Listeners to the show know that the Therapy for Real Life podcast translates therapy concepts into actionable self-care strategies for everyday use. And as a burnout prevention therapist, I'm frequently counseling folks on the benefits of exercise on mental health. Still, many of us struggle to get motivated and take action to change our relationship to exercise. This is why I'm excited to talk with Dr. Jennifer Heights, a neuroscientist and director of the NeuroFit Lab at McMaster University and author of the book, Move the Body, Heal the Mind, Overcome Anxiety, Depression, and Dementia, and Improve Focus, Creativity, and Sleep. Dr. Heights describes the many powerful benefits of exercise throughout her book, which I personally found very motivating. I'm eager to hear what she has to share with listeners in today's episode. Dr. Heights, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so curious to hear what motivated you to become a neuroscientist who specializes in the healing effects of exercise. Yeah, it's funny. It's it was not a linear path for me. So I started out in my PhD studying the effects of exercise on the brain. So really fundamental questions like how does the brain represent who we are? And uh, at the time I was in grad school and I was starting to feel lots of anxiety, lots of stress and realized something wasn't right with my own brain. Um, And so I sought out a psychologist or psychiatrist and wasn't able to find the right help I needed. And on a whim, I borrowed a friend's rusty old road bike and that the movement quieted my mind Mm. and uh, it really sparked a shift in my research. So not only did it help me personally, but it helped me change my focus professionally. And from that point forward, uh, I've really been focusing intensely on the effects of exercise on the brain. Oh, I love that. I love how your pathway to exercise began with this intuitive felt sense of the benefits of exercise. Mm -hmm. And I think we all have a general sense that exercise is quote unquote good for you and you're supposed to do it and probably more than you're doing right now. And somebody maybe even suggested it to you, but that doesn't mean that we're doing it. What do you think people usually think of when they think of exercise and what do you wish that they better understood about exercise? Yeah, I think, and, and, I came to exercise late in the game. So, I mean, I was never an athlete growing up. Um, I had this love-hate relationship with exercise where I knew it was good for me, um, but I struggled to find a sport that I liked or an activity that I could stick with. So um, it wasn't until that time that I started those bike rides that I really understood the benefits of exercise. So I think First of all, exercising is hard. Let's just get that out of the way, you know, Um, and it's not easy. And the reason it's not easy is because the brain is wired to actually prevent us from moving too much. And this is like a relic of our evolutionary past when, you know, resources were scarce and we had to expend a lot of energy to hunt and gather our food. Uh, And so the brain was really wired up to conserve energy and any kind of, you know, extra movement for fun or for, you know, 
for pleasure was seen as an extravagant expense. And so it, it really wants you to not do that. So the brain is really wired up to make us lazy. And so, you know, you probably have experienced this before any workout, your brain starts protesting like, oh, it's hard. You're tired. Do you even have time for this right now? There's all these excuses the brain throws down to try to make you stay still where you are uh, as a as a way for it to conserve energy. Isn't so that, that what, you, what we call the homeostatic happy place? Your brain yeah. wants to default back to the, the least amount of exertion possible. Exactly. The homeostatic happy place where, you know, everything is just at rest, at balance. The brain really likes being there and it does a really good job at keeping us there. You know, um, and then something like exercise is a stressor. You know, it is a physical stressor that that causes the body to move outside of that homeostatic happy place just temporarily. And I mean, that that sounds like it could be a bad thing. But what happens is that every time you push your body outside of its homeostatic happy place, it helps tone your stress response so that it's more uh, it's stronger, it's more resilient and less reactive to stressors in the future. So the idea is that exercise is this controllable, temporary stressor that we that we exert on ourselves. So it's it's like a safe stressor compared to a lot of the stressors in our life that are really out of our control could be lasting for a long time. Um, and those are the sort of the bad stressors. So we can use the good stress of exercise to help prepare us and strengthen both our bodies and our minds to better deal with those bad stressors that we have less control over. I found that part of your book very validating. It, it helped me say to myself, it's not me. It's my lazy brain. Of course, <laughs> you don't, you're, you don't feel like exercising. I don't have yeah. to take it personally or start calling myself names. I'm not someone who exercises. It's just that little part of your brain that doesn't want to for a little while. Yeah. And I, and that's like a real important message I want to convey in the book is, you know, there's no need for guilt or shame. I mean, this is hard and let's just start moving a little bit more, you know, than we are now and, and keep this mantra that some is better than none. You know, back to that bike ride, you were feeling the wind in your hair mm -hmm. and felt maybe even a runner's high um, as part of it. You got that felt sense. And, and then in the book, you share all these pretty cool neuroscience factoids. What else have you been kind of surprised or maybe in that fun geek out kind of way? What mm -hmm. other parts of the brain should we understand and how does it relate to exercise? Yeah. So, I mean, I could geek out for hours, but oh, this that. is <laughs> this uh, one that really took me by surprise is the benefits of lactate on the brain. So more about that. Yeah. So, you know, you've probably been to maybe you've been to an exercise class where the instructor is like, OK, we need to flush out that lactate. Make sure you're, you know, drinking lots of water. We got to get rid of this bad lactate in the muscles. And and it has this really negative connotation, but it turns out that lactate may be one of the best promoters of neuroplasticity. So mm -hmm. lactate builds up in the muscles when they're working hard. 
And it accumulates when we're at a hard level of exercise. But what happens is the lactate doesn't stay in the muscles. It moves into the blood and then travels all the way to the brain to a particular area called the hippocampus. And this area of the brain is critical for memory. It's also important in stress regulation. And so when lactate arrives at the hippocampus, it stimulates all this growth, these growth factors that support the proliferation of newborn brain cells that, that are birthed in the hippocampus to help support our memory and to help better regulate our stress system. So this, this vilified lactate is actually a hero. <laughs> so I really like that, um, uh, that finding. It's a really fascinating finding. And we are like that idea of befriending, you know, that stress response. I'm not going to feel like, okay, befriending lactate that has an important function in your body. If you know how to use it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So this, uh, this idea that, you know, hard exercise is bad or it could be, it, it's, you need to have that hard exercise to get the, the memory benefits in particular, as we've shown in our research. So. Mm -hmm. This is why it's called behavioral medicine. It has, mm -hmm. it has an interaction with the body. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Another really cool, fascinating finding is related to this chemical called neuropeptide Y. Mm -hmm. And this is not widely known in, in the, the public, but it's such a fascinating molecule that is really, a I see it as a resiliency factor. So we can think of neuropeptide Y. This is low. So if we think if we link it back to sort of a disorder, um, one of the most common disorders affected by neuropeptide Y is uh, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, although two people can experience the same traumatic event, like a wartime or an assault or um, some other traumatizing event, not everybody will develop PTSD. Some people are protected. And the ones that are protected are the ones who have higher levels of this neuropeptide Y. Hmm. And so this, this resiliency factor that it, it, makes the brain more resilient to these traumatic, stressful events. And the beautiful thing is that exercise gives us more neuropeptide Y, more resiliency. Mm -hmm. And you don't need to work hard to get this. You can get it with really light exercise, which I love. So, you know, maybe you're not suffering from PTSD, but it's, it's a similar application for anyone suffering with anxiety. Um, this neuropeptide Y, what it does is it soothes, soothes the amygdala, which is the brain region responsible for fear regulation and, um, threat detection. So when the amygdala doesn't have enough neuropeptide Y, it's hyperactive, hypervigilant, always on alert. It sends shock waves into the body through the stress system, which makes you even more anxious and it creates this vicious cycle. So when we move our body, even just a little bit, what it does produces neuropeptide Y, which soothes, soothes the amygdala and calms the body. And so it creates this this uh, 
reservoir of peace in the body, which I just, mm. I love. It's, mm. it's such a cool finding. That sounds delicious. Mm-hmm. I'll, have, I'll have some of that. Mm-hmm. And I love the example <laughs> of trauma because it's not only soothing in the body, which is so important in terms of grounding and regulating um, sensations in the body, but it's also important for trauma recovery in that agency building sense, which I'm sure everyone can relate to just in terms of building self-esteem or mastery or competence. It's very exactly yeah. both on the biological level and on the psychological level. There's mm-hmm. an interaction there. Speaking about this um, interaction, between sort of the mind and the body and the behavioral approach. Um, One of the really interesting findings has to do with hot, you know, using high intensity exercise as a form of exposure therapy. So I, this finding was really cool. So generally in the literature and from our research, we found that for, for the treatment of anxiety in particular, light to moderate exercise is is the best it's real it's really beneficial as i said it increases neuropeptide y it uh, soothes the body soothes the mind but there's this really interesting line of research showing that in particular people who have anxiety sensitivity and what this means is essentially the fear of fear itself you can think of it that way but it's it really is a a sense of anxiety when you start feeling anxious. So when your heart races, you think, oh my God, I'm having a heart attack. When you're, you know, your breathing is labored or you think you're suffocating or when, you know, when your mind is distracted and difficult to focus, you think you're losing your mind. So it, it, it cre- it takes the feelings of anxiety and just like creates an anxiety about them. So this is anxiety sensitivity and individuals with anxiety sensitivity, you you don't have to have an anxiety disorder to have it, but it does put you at risk. But people with anxiety sensitivity don't like to exercise because exercise evokes all these same feelings like the heart's racing and they get afraid. And so in particular, people with anxiety sensitivity avoid intense exercise. But there's this research that I present in the book that shows that if we use these intense bursts like intermittently uh, in in a workout, what it does is it helps expose the individual to the symptoms they fear. So again, we're in this safe, controlled stress space where we can, you know, for even just a few seconds, pick up the pace to like a full out sprint and stop, feel the heart race and then relax. And this type of exposing yourself to these feared symptoms, but in a safe space, it, it, it's, it like, it's like an exposure therapy and you become, you know, tolerant of it, more tolerant of it. And you learn to trust that it's not going to kill you, that it's actually going to make you stronger. That's right. So So instead of, you know, if you were had fear of spiders, you might start by talking about spiders that might make you nervous. You might start Googling images of spiders. You might eventually hold one in your hand with the support of your therapist or coach cheering you on. Anxiety is mostly invisible. We can see it or suspect it. 
we can try yeah. to do it that way, but it's, it's kind of sneaky in that way. So oh, yeah, really that, exposing that, yourself, mm. just like holding a spider in your hand. That's what you're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit like peppering in a little bit of intensity into your, you know, your daily walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I, sorry. Uh, one thing you mentioned about, um, you know, this idea that anxiety is invisible and it's often, you know, that's really the hard part is it's, it's not only is it invisible, but it's also can be elucidatory, you know, like it's, it's not necessarily based in reality, which means it's, it's difficult. And so the brain um, has no way of communicating the type of threat that it's detecting. So the amygdala just detects threats and then communicates that to the body in the form of a stress response. And it, it can't tell the body, Hey, this is, I think I'm just worried about this. It's not real. It, it can't tell the body that. And so the body responds in the same way, whether it's like a real threat or an imaginary threat that's, that you're, you're perceiving. And I say that not to, to devalue those worries and threats because they are real to you and they manifest real in the body, but this is what really makes anxiety tricky to treat. And mm-hmm. um, so this idea of sort of getting out of your head and into your body and moving it slowly with intermittent bursts of activity um, mm-hmm. is really a, a fabulous form of, the, of therapy and treatment for people who want to try that out. love your description of anxiety and how it relates to the fight or flight response and the function of some of those quick judgments, you know, black and white thinking it again is our survival. You know, are you a friend or a foe? Yummy or yucky, Mm -hmm. scary or safe? Mm -hmm. And it can make us feel very rigid or tense in the Mm -hmm. body Mm -hmm. and triggers all those emergency organs firing and we can become sensitive to that. What's happening in the brain when you become less black and white in your thinking, you're calming that fight or flight mm-hmm. response. What mm-hmm. other areas of the brain are getting activated, say, when you exercise? Yeah. So uh, a major player in calming us down is our prefrontal cortex. So this is at the front of the brain. And this is our most evolved brain region that really separates us from other animals. It's the largest in humans and the most computationally complex. But the, the prefrontal cortex, you can think of it as like the CEO of the brain. It directs everything. And so the CEO, the prefrontal cortex, we call it PFC, it reaches back and kind of calms the amygdala down. So it's like the rational part of the brain and, and it can calm the amygdala down, but you know, no, it's not a real threat. And then the amygdala relaxes. So it, it can, you can, you know, short circuit that fear response with your own self-talk, it can be kind of, you know, reframing the picture. That's the role of the prefrontal cortex, sort of this logic overrides emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like cognitive is, behavioral therapy. Exactly. Yeah. Approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So cognitive behavioral therapy sort of slows 
So the amygdala works super fast. It's, it's like reactive black or white and the prefrontal cortex helps slow things down. So that's like essentially what CBT is doing, right? It's slowing things down, rationally evaluating the fear back to the original source. Um, similar uh, mindfulness works this way as well. So mindfulness helps the prefrontal cortex soothe the amygdala. So it connects that communication stronger. The problem when we get into anxiety, um, moments of anxiety or anxiety disorders is that that connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, it's, it, it gets disconnected and the communication breaks down. So this is why, you know, offline when we're not in those episodes, practicing CBT in a safer space or practicing mindfulness on a daily basis can really help engage the prefrontal cortex so that it can quiet the amygdala, soothe it. So it's less, you know, reactive to potential threats um, in the environment. It, it makes for overall a more calming uh, brain and body and exercise helps to infuse the prefrontal cortex with oxygenated blood, and nutrients to help it function better. So when we exercise, even just a short amount, it increases blood flow to the prefrontal cortex. So it can function better. It can, you know, suppress the amygdala a little bit better and, and help keep you sort of in that steady, easy mindset. Um, and that's like a really cool, uh, a really cool finding when it comes to the prefrontal cortex is that you know, even just five minutes of movement is enough to increase blood flow. And it can be at any intensity. It can be low, moderate, or high intensity. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that people underestimate is that, you know, even just interrupting your sitting time. So, I mean, you know, we, especially nowadays, we're mostly sitting in front of our computer, you know, on Zoom all day. We barely have to like switch to meeting rooms or anything. Um, but breaking up your seating time with short, frequent movement breaks. So like every 30 minutes, get out for a two minute movement break and stretch. And this helps to um, so, sorry, when we sit for long periods of time, what happens is the blood brain flow decreases. So the brain is, is sort of becoming, it's getting starved a little. <laughs> and so these movement breaks help to replenish the brain's blood flow and nutrients so that it can stay online and stay functioning optimally. I'm hearing you describe throughout the book, and I think this is a good example of shades of gray instead of black and white thinking, such as exercise is good for us. We know that, but exercise is also good for us in lots of different ways. So as you describe the different brain functions, like the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala and the benefits of getting both those places oxygenated, you give even examples of different exercise routines that mix and match. And so you describe uh, hedonic pleasure spots mm -hmm. that do this by doing a little bit of that high intensity and then the easier workout. I don't know if that's the same thing as being in work mode or vacation mode. You mm -hmm. describe the importance of going back and forth. So talk a little bit about how, how this information empowers listeners to not just exercise is good, feel better, but actually a, a little bit of the choice that they have in how they 
how they access those different parts of the brain through exercise? Yeah, so um, there is a lot of choice. There's a lot of option. Um, I think that's really a great message to send is that, you know, the best form of exercise is the form that you like to do and that you'll continue to do. Um, so that I think that's an important message message and it can be aerobic, it can be resistance, it could be yoga, Tai Chi, it really can be any form of movement um, that uh, that gets your body you know, moving. Um, so when it comes to these, you know, these hedonic hotspots, as you mentioned, I talk about this um, in relation to the pleasure of exercise and um, that runner's high that, that can be very elusive. Um, and the hedonic hotspots are these really newly discovered regions in the brain, um, in the reward center of the brain that get activated, they get co-activated by both endorphins, which are the body's natural painkillers, and by endocannabinoids, which is the body's natural cannabis. And so exercise stimulates the production of both of these cool chemicals that come together at these hedonic hotspots in the reward system and give the brain really explosive pleasure. And hey, you so, just said cannabis. I've heard of that before. <laughs> is that the same? Does that mean for folks that have used cannabis or this is a naturally existing chemical in your body? Yeah. So it's a naturally existing chemical. It, it's, it's very similar to cannabis. Um, uh, exactly. Uh, mm -hmm. And it stimulates the same receptors in the brain. And so like cannabis makes you feel, you know, you get this rewarding sensation like with cannabis or any other drugs. In fact, mm -hmm. um, it, it works exactly the same way as mm -hmm. the cannabinoid system. So yeah, that's a cool, interesting, fun fact that most people don't know. And I, I like to think, oh, well, maybe that's why I feel so mellow after ah, I go for a run. Yes, I'm sure. And in fact, you have a whole chapter dedicated to, um, you know, substance use recovery and how exercise is a, it's a great. Yeah, yeah. And it helps to really heal the brain faster from addiction, which is, I think is just such a beautiful uh, message in the book. Um, and one that really, I, I hope will empower a lot of people. Before we move on to some of the um, not just preventative effects of exercise, but, but additives such as creative creativity and focus, I want to spend a little bit more time on where we can get stuck. So we, we talked about how helpful ex exercise can be for exposure. What about depression, mm -hmm. which is actually kind of the opposite of feeling like getting your running shorts on and exercising? How can, yeah. how can exercise be helpful for people who just don't feel like it? Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that we've seen, especially during the pandemic is that, you know, people wanted to exercise for their mental health, but they were too stressed or anxious and they lack the motivation, which is a symptom of depression. And so how do we get people over that, you know, that barrier of, you know, they want to exercise for their mental health, but you know, their mental health is getting in the way this sort of mental health paradox. And we suggest, you know, the, this is, this requires like a reframing of, of your approach to, to movement and exercise. And 
again, focusing on this mantra that some is better than none. So once around the block, twice, maybe three times, and just start moving because it's that initial inertia, getting over that initial inertia, it, it, it helps. So you just have to get, get the ball rolling a little bit. And then the beautiful thing about exercise is that as soon as you start moving, the muscles start to release all of these neurochemicals and then you start to feel good and you start to get that neuropeptide Y and you start to get the, you know, the growth factors and the dopamine and it starts to feel good. So it really is, you know, you're, you're on, we just need to get past that inertia, just moving. And so I call it, you know, a mental health mode of exercise where you can have these negotiations with yourself. Like maybe you thought you wanted to go for a 30 minute jog, <laughs> but now you're tired. It's the end of the day. You're exhausted. You don't feel like going. You just rather sit and watch TV, but maybe the compromise can be, well, you, you know, put your runners on your, you know, your running shoes on and then start at a walking pace mm-hmm. and see how you feel. And I bet that once you start moving, the momentum will just stick, help you to stick with it. And maybe, maybe you'll increase the intensity, maybe not, but that doesn't matter. What matters most is that you're moving a little bit more. Um, How do you make it even easier on yourself? You you point to a lot of good research in the book, like the benefits of supervised exercise, Mm -hmm. group exercise, music. How do you, how do you, what, what should folks know? If they don't have motivation, what else can help them get? Yeah, them? yeah. So um, like you said, having having an exercise friend group or, you know, having an exercise class that you enjoy to go to where you're working out with other people, because this sense of moving in synchrony with other people is extremely rewarding for the brain and it makes the effort feel, the, the work feel less effortful. Uh, listening to music also does that because what, what you can do is you can even listen to music before your workout because music produces dopamine, uh, which can start the reward system. It sort of ignites it. You feel good and then it makes it easier to move. And then you get the dopamine from the exercise that gets layered on top of that. there's, there's these tricks. There's another fun trick I talk about where, um, the Gatorade swish in the mouth, uh, where you could take like a sugary drink and just swish it around in your mouth and you don't even have to drink it. You could just spit it out. Um, and this is a way to sort of remind the brain that resources are plenty and that we're, you know, we're not in a time of, of, of famine and that, uh, it doesn't have to be so energy conservative. And, and then the brain will like, let go of its laziness and be like, okay, okay, we can, we can do this. (laughs) I can afford this. I found that motivating even just to tell myself you've got resources to spare. Uh, And, and the Gatorade swish did um, bring a question to mind for me because that's not so different than some of the tricks that you'll see people try 
Um, you know, when it comes to disordered relationships with food, I'll just smell it instead of eat it. Mm. Um, and there are even communities, you know, where folks kind of um, introduce each other to what are actually forms of self-harm. Mm. And exercise, just like food, we need it, but there are extremes. And with depression, we can feel unmotivated and go to that extreme. Um, but when we have that distorted sense of self or stress response, poor self-image, body image, we can also go to an excessive mm -hmm. uh, use of exercise or use exercise rather than pleasure as a form of self-punishment. Yeah. So what would you say to folks who have that complicated relationship with exercise? They want to do it. They know um, they need to do it, but it can also be triggering that way, um, mm -hmm. trigger that, that disproportion. But absolutely, um, exercise addiction can happen. It's rare, but as you said, it's often linked up with um, disordered eating and body image issues. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, I think that it's important to really to be truthful with yourself. Are you, you know, when, when you're exercising, is it a form of punishment or are you doing it for health benefits? And I think, I think that this is a really good shift that's happening in, in the world of movement is that people aren't exercising just to look good anymore. It's not about looking good and losing weight. It's more about supporting your, your own personal growth, mental development, um, and this self-help. So it's this it has to be, I think, wrapped up in this idea that exercise movement is nourishing the brain for, you know, empowered mental health. Um, and so that, that's important. So yes, I, and I think when we think about that, there can, some people do have this very, um, you know, hate relationship with exercise mm -hmm. um, and themselves, that 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 requires more counseling and more um, support to help shift the mindset around exercise to be more of, of an aid rather than a pain for them. Yeah. What I hear you saying is exercise is supposed to be pleasurable. It's something that we're, we're, you know, biologically designed to do. It feels good. There are incentives. And sometimes it's really hard to do that exposure work alone. And actually all those protocols we have set up for exposure therapy are done with the help of a professional that can help you come to that sense of mm -hmm. proportion. And perhaps something we're learning from the nutrition community about intuitive eating is just like intuitive exercise. So I appreciate mm -hmm. that. Um, you yeah, know, I love that idea. Of honest with exercise. That, yeah. That, you know, what you shared just a moment ago, being being honest and accountable. So if you need some support with that, that's a, it's not uncommon for folks to have complex relationship to food or um, exercise. So yeah, yes, that's, that's not mm -hmm. uncommon. Good. Let's talk a little bit about some of the um, other positive benefits of exercise specifically on creativity and focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this is linked back up to the prefrontal cortex. So 
the CEO of the brain helps guide and direct everything else. And it has sort of these three functions. So um, the two that are most critical, one is the inhibitory control, which helps to keep us focused and on task. And the other one is this flexible thinking or mental flexibility, which is needed for creativity. And so the two are often in opposition. So, you know, when we're focusing on work, we need to inhibit all the distractions around us and stay focused on the task. Um, when we're sort of daydreaming and, you know, free thinking and being creative, we can be mentally flexible and not worry about inhibiting anything, you know, any ideas. And so this idea that exercising, you know, if we move in certain ways, we can actually train both so that we can think really great and flexibly switch between the two so we can focus, but also be creative at the same time. And so typically the way a lot of people exercise is they jump on the treadmill and they run, you know, or walk. Uh, that's like what people conceptualize as exercise. And I like refer to the treadmill as the dreadmill because mm -hmm. I hate that form of exercise. <laughs> I really do. Um, and like this, the hamster on the wheel, you know, the hamster in. on the wheel and you spend the whole, like whatever, 30 minutes or whatever, just trying to inhibit your boredom, you know, <laughs> like, uh, what time is it? How much time is it? So this really flexes your inhibitory control, but it doesn't really flex your, your creativity. And so I talk in the book about, you know, we have to cross train for creativity. And this means either, you know, playing a dynamic sport, a net or um, combat sport where you're playing with against a comp competitor who's you know, Im impulsive or, you know, dynamic in their movements, unpredictable. And this keeps your, your mind flexible. You could just um, be married or a long-term <laughs> relationship that could do it. <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely that makes you flexible. <laughs> so yeah, there's this idea that we have to, you know, cross train in our movements, so not just do one activity, but try a variety of things out. And by doing that, we sort of, we can train both aspects so we can be, become more focused, but stay creative and stay open to these opportunities, yeah. yeah. Have you personally found that to be beneficial for your creativity? How do you use exercise to help you stay open and flexible? Yeah, well, right now um, I'm doing yoga. So that's kind of my main focus is yoga. I'm um, doing sort of the hot yoga. I like that. And uh, I find that's like a full hour. It's a, it's a, it's a full hour and a half of like focused meditation. Um, but we're doing it together in synchrony. And there's this, you know, very supportive community vibe. Um, and then I run as sort of that's made it my mental health medicine, I like to call it. So I, um, it's, it's, it is the medicine I need. So I run to soothe my mind and that, um, that helps me a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, a lot of people who do struggle with mental health issues, they don't often seek therapy because they still have this stigma of, around it, around the judgment that, that will come for them. And, and so that's why I think this book is so important and these conversations are so important because 
we can talk openly about it as it, it's a, a brain disorder, you know, and we can heal that through healthy lifestyle, healthy living. And, um, you know, to, to be stronger and uh, more at peace with ourselves. Well, Dr. Hayes, thank you so much. I can't imagine a better message to end today's conversation on. We didn't even get to half of my notes and questions <laughs> that I wanted to ask you. So I would certainly recommend that folks go ahead and finish the book, enough of my spoilers and, um, and start, yeah, thinking that there, there's that invitation to think creatively about what would it look like to expand my exercise routine just a little bit at a time, try something new, maybe something that adds pleasure or diversity of experience to your yeah. life and start there. That. Mm -hmm. Thank you great. so much for joining us today. My pleasure. for Real Life also offers workplace workshops to help your team buffer against the stresses of daily life. Therapy for Real Life is known for the Burnout Prevention Hackathon, which teaches your team self-care strategies that are backed by research to help you interrupt burnout and promote self-care. Now that work has moved primarily to virtual and work from home, Therapy for Real Life has adapted the Burnout Prevention Hackathon for the online community. Get in touch to discuss your interest in stress management, burnout prevention, relationship building, and other self-care workshops and how to adapt these trainings for your team's needs.